Today I'm reading from Roy Baskar, The Possibility of Naturalism, a philosophical critique of the contemporary human sciences, the third edition. I'm reading in uh, chapter two, Societies, page 41, Some Emergent Properties of Social Systems. Now, if social activity consists analytically in production, that is, in work on and the transformation of given objects, and if such a work constitutes an analog of natural events, then we need an analog for the mechanisms that generate it. If social structures constitute the appropriate mechanism analog, then an important difference must be immediately registered in that in that, unlike natural mechanisms, they exist only in virtue of the activities they govern and cannot be empirically identified independently of them. Because of this, they must be social products themselves. Thus, people in their social activity must perform a dual function. They must not only make social products, but make the conditions of their making. That is, reproduce, or to a greater or lesser extent transform, the structures governing their substantive activities of production. Because social structures are themselves social products, they are themselves possible objects of transformation and so may be only relatively enduring. Moreover, the differentiation and development of social activities, as in the division of labor and expanded reproduction, respectively, implies that they are interdependent so social structures may be only relatively autonomous. Society may thus be conceived as an articulated ensemble of such relatively independent and enduring generative structures. That is, as a complex totality subject to change both in its components and in their interrelation. Now, as social structures exist only in virtue of the activities they govern, they do not exist independently of the conceptions that the agents possess of what they are doing in their activity, that is, of some theory of these activities. Because such theories are themselves social products, they are themselves possible objects of transformation, and so they too may be only relatively enduring and autonomous. Finally, because social structures are themselves social products, Social activity must be given a social explanation and cannot be explained by reference to non-social parameters, though the latter may impose constraints on the possible forms of social activity. Some ontological limitations on a possible naturalism may be immediately derived from these emergent social properties on the assumption to be vindicated below that society is sui generis real. One, Social structures, unlike natural structures, do not exist independently of the activities they govern. Two, social structures, unlike natural structures, do not exist independently of the agent's conceptions of what they are doing in their activity. Three, social structures, unlike natural structures, may be only relatively enduring, so that the tendencies they ground may not be universal in the sense of space-time invariant. These all indicate real differences in the possible objects of knowledge in the case of the natural and social sciences. The internal complexity and inter interdependence of social structures do not mark a necessary difference from natural ones. They are not, of course, unconnected. Though one should be wary of drawing conclusions of the sort, quote, society exists only in virtue of human activity, human activity is conscious, 
Therefore, consciousness brings about change, end quote. First of all, social changes need not be consciously intended. And second of all, if there are social conditions for consciousness, changes in it can be in, in principle socially explained. Society, then, is an articulated ensemble of tendencies and powers, which, unlike natural ones, exist only as long as they, or at least some of them, are being exercised, are exercised in the last instance via the intentional activity of human beings, and are not necessarily space-time invariant. I now want to turn to the ontological status of societies. I have argued elsewhere that living things determine the conditions of applicability of the physical laws to which they are subject, so that their properties cannot be reduced to the latter. That is, that emergence characterizes both the natural and the human world, needs a long parenthesis, and that this is consistent with what may be termed a, quote, diachronic explanatory reduction, end quote, that is, a reconstruction of the historical processes of their formation out of, quote, simpler things, end paren. Now, if, as I shall show in chapter 3, intentional action is a necessary condition for certain determinate states of the physical world, then the properties and powers that persons possess in virtue of what intentionality is correctly attributed to them are real. Similarly, it can be shown that but for society, certain physical actions would not be performed. Then, employing the causal criterion set out in chapter 1, one is justified in asserting that it is real. Now, I think that Durkheim, having established the autonomy of social facts using the criterion of externality, in effect employed just such a criterion to establish their reality in invoking his other criterion of constraint. It is a long quote. I am not obligated to speak French with my fellow countrymen, nor to use the legal currency, but I cannot possibly do otherwise. If I tried to escape this necessity, my attempt would fail miserably. As an industrialist, I am free to apply the technical methods of former centuries, but by doing so, I should invite certain ruin. Even when I free myself from those rules and violate them successfully, I am always compelled to struggle with them. When finally overcome, they make their constraining power felt by the resistance they offer." End quote. Durkheim is saying, in effect, that but for the range of social facts, particular sequences of sounds, movements of bodies, and so on would not occur. Of course, one must insist against Durkheim that the range of social facts depends on though is irreducible to the intentional activity of human beings. The individualist truth that people are the only moving forces in history, in the sense that nothing happens, as it were, behind their backs. That is, everything that happens, happens in and through their actions. This must be retained. Moreover, social structures must be conceived as, in principle, enabling, not just coercive. Nevertheless, in employing a causal criterion to establish the reality of social facts, Durkheim observed perfectly proper scientific practice, though it must be recognized that one is here dealing with a most peculiar kind of entity, a structure irreducible to, but present only in, its effects. Although Durkheim used a causal criterion to establish the reality of social facts, 
on a collectivist conception of sociology, the same criterion can be employed with more epistemological consistency to establish the reality on a relational one. There is no special difficulty, as for example the con concept of spin in physics shows in ascribing reality to relations on a causal criterion. Indeed, given the openness of the world within which its phenomena occur, it is only if a non-empirical object is specified for it that sociology's theoretical autonomy can be definitely secured, a point dramatically illustrated by the pitfalls in which Weber's definition of sociology, which logically includes worship, because other-oriented, but excludes prayer, plunges it. What is the connection between the transformational model of social activity developed in the previous section and the relational conception of sociology advanced in the second section? The relational conception does not, of course, deny that factories and books are social forms, nor does it insist that the rules of grammar or the generative complexes at work in other spheres of social life are or must be conceived as relations but it maintains that their being social, as distinct from, or in addition to, material objects, and their consisting in social rules, as distinct from purely, quote, anencastic ones, which depend upon the operation of natural laws alone, depends essentially on, and indeed in a sense consists entirely in, the relationships between people and between such relationships and nature and the products and functions of such relationships that such objects and rules causally presuppose or entail. It's not difficult to see why this must be so, for it follows from the argument of the previous section that social structures first, well, we didn't read that section, they first are continually reproduced or transformed and second, exist only in virtue of and are exercised only in human agency. Combining these desiderata, it is evident that we need a system of mediating con concepts encompassing both aspects of the duality of praxis, designating the slots, as it were, in the social structure into which active subjects must slip in order to reproduce it. That is, a system of concepts designating the point of contact between human agency and social structures. Such a point linking action to structure must both endure and be immediately occupied by individuals. It is clear that the mediating system we need is that of the position, that is the places, functions, rules, tasks, duties, rights, etc. The positions occupied, that is filled, assumed, enacted, and so on. The positions occupied by individuals and of the practices you know, activities and so on, in which in virtue of their occupancy of these positions and vice versa, they engage. I shall call this mediating system the position practice system. Now, such positions and practices, if they are to be individuated at all, can only be done so relationally. It follows, as an immediate consequence of this, that the initial conditions in any concrete social explanation must always include or tacitly presuppose reference to some or other social relation, however the generative structures invoked are themselves best conceived. 
And it is, I suggest, in the explanation of the differentiation and stratification, production and reproduction, mutation and transformation, in the explanation of and in the uh, continual remodeling and incess incessant shifting, in the and in the explanation of the relatively enduring relations presupposed by particular social forms and structures that sociology's distinctive theoretical interest lies. Thus, the transformational model implies a relational interest for sociology, and it suggests in terms of that interest a way of differentiating sociology from the other social sciences, such as linguistics, economics, and so on, which, however, logically presuppose it. It should be noted that neither individuals nor groups satisfy the requirement of continuity derived from the reapplication of Durkheim's criterion, the criterion of externality or pre-existence. Neither individuals nor groups satisfy this requirement for the autonomy of society over discrete amounts of time. In social life, only relations endure. Note also that such relations include relationships between people and nature and social products, such as machines and firms, as well as interpersonal ones, and that such relations include, but do not all consist in, quote, interactions. Thus contrast the relationship between speaker and hearer in dialogue with the deontic relationship between citizen and state. Deontic, probably. Finally, it is important to stress that from the standpoint of the social sciences, though not necessarily either that of the psychological sciences or of historical explanation, the relations one is concerned with here must be conceptualized as holding between the positions and practices, or better, positioned practices, not between the individuals who occupy or engage in them. One advantage of the relational conception should be immediately apparent. It allows one to focus on a range of questions having to do with the distribution of the structural conditions of action, and in particular with differential allocations of first productive resources of all kinds, including cognitive ones, uh, to persons and groups, and differential allocations of persons to functions and roles, for example, in the div division of labor. In doing so, it allows one to situate the possibility of different and antagonistic interests of conflicts within society, and hence of interest-motivated transformations in social structure. In focusing on distribution as well as exchange, the relational con conception avoids the endemic weakness of market e economics. And in allowing conflicts within society, as well as between society and the individual, it remedies the chronic failing of orthodox sociology, preoccupied as that was, and indeed still is, with the, quote, Hobbesian problem of order, end quote. Marx combined an essentially relational conception of social science and a transformational model of social activities with the additional premise of historical materialism, that it is material production that ultimately determines the rest of social life. Now, as is well known, although it can be established a priori that material production is a necessary condition for social life, 
it cannot be proved that it is the ultimately determining one. And so, like any other fundamental conceptual blueprint or paradigm in science, historical materialism can only be justified by its fruitfulness in generating projects, encapsulating research programs capable of generating sequences of theories progressively richer in explanatory power. Not the least of the problems facing historical materialism is that although continual progress has been made in particular areas of explanation, the blueprint itself still awaits adequate articulation. One has only to think of the problem of reconciling the thesis of the relative autonomy of the superstructure with that of their determination in the last instance by the base to be reminded of this. It is doubtful if any topic in philosophy has been more dogged by dogma than that of internal relations. The doctrine that all relations are external is implicit in the Humean theory of causality where it is enshrined in the notion of the contingency of the causal connection. But it has been accepted by virtually the whole orthodox, empiricist, and neo-Kantian tradition in the philosophy of science. Conversely, rationalists, absolute idealists, and mistresses of the arts of Hegelian and Bergsonian dialectics have usually subscribed to the equally erroneous view that all relations are internal. Here again, a major philosophical difference cuts across the Marxist-non-Marxist divide. Coletti and Ullman represent only the most recent and particularly extreme variants of positions already fully articulated within Marxism, at least as far back as Hilferding and Dietzgen. Now it is essential to recognize that some relations are internal and some are not. Moreover, some natural relations, such as that between a magnet and its field, are internal. And many social relations, such as that between two cyclists crossing on a hilltop, are not. It is in principle an open question whether or not some particular relation in historical time is internal. A relation between A and B may be defined as internal if and only if A would not be what it essentially is unless B is related to it in the way that it is. The relation is symmetrically internal if the same applies also to B. A and B may designate universals or particulars, concepts or things, including relations. The relation bourgeoisie-proletariat is symmetrically internal. Traffic warden state is asymmetrically internal. Passing motorist policeman, not in general internal at all. The fact that it is an epistemically contingent question as to whether or not some given relation is internal is obscured by the condition that when one knows what a thing's essential nature is, one is then often in a position to give a real definition of it, so that it will then appear to be analytic that B is related to it in the way that it is. But of course, real definitions are not plucked a priori out of hats, spun out of thought alone, rather they are produced a posteriori in the irreducibly empirical process of science. It is vital to appreciate that there can be no presumption of explanatory equality between the relata of an internal relationship, like those things being re related. Thus, capitalist production may dominate, that is, determine the forms of exchange, without the latter ceasing to be essential for it. Internally related aspects may command, as it were, differential causal force, or to put it another way, ontological depth 
or stratification, defined causally, is consistent with relational internality, including symmetry, but that is existential parity. Indeed, it is characteristic of the social sphere that surface structure is necessary for deep, just as langue is a condition of parole and intentionality of system. Now, most social phenomena, like most natural events, are conjuncturally determined, and as such, in general, have to be explained in terms of a multiplicity of causes. But given the epistemic contingency of their relational character, the extent to which their explanation requires reference to a totality of aspects bearing internal relations to one another remains open. However, even a superficially external relationship, such as that between Breton fishermen and the owners of the shipwreck tanker Amoco Cadiz, may, given the appropriate focus of explanatory interest, permit or necessitate a totalitizing revealing for example, the relationships between forms of economic activity and state structure. This ever-present possibility of discovering what is a potentially new totality in a nexus accounts for the chameleon-like and configurational quality of a subject matter which is not only always changing, but may, in this respect like any other, be continually redescribed. Now, although totalization is a process in thought, totalities are real. Although it is contingent whether we re require a phenomenon to be understood as an aspect of a totality, depending upon our cognitive interests, it is not contingent whether it is such an aspect or not. Social science does not create the totalities it reveals, although it may itself be an aspect of them. It has always been the special claim of Marxism to be able to grasp social life as a totality, to display it, in Labriola's words, as a connection and complexus, whose various moments may of course be asymmetrically weighted, primed with differential causal force. And Marxism has claimed to be able to do so in virtue of a theory of history specifying inter alia the mode of articulation of the moments of that totality or instances of the social structure. The theory of history can only be judged by historical materials, but can anything be said in the light of the foregoing analysis about the intentions, if not the results, of this project? Our analysis indicates a way of conceptualizing the relationship between the special social sciences such as linguistics, economics, politics, etc., sociology, history, and a totalizing theory of society such as that ventured by Marxism. If history is above all the science of the past particular, and sociology is the science of social relation, the various social sciences are concerned with the structural conditions for particular types of social activity, that is, the generative complexes at work in the production of these activities. Of course, given the interdependence of social activities, hypostatization of the results of such particular analyses must be most assiduously avoided. Moreover, as external conditions may be internally related to the generative mechanisms at work in particular spheres of social life, the special sciences logically presuppose a totalizing, which on the transformational model can only be a, th a theory of history. 
If sociology is concerned with the structures governing the relationships, which are necessary in particular historical periods for the reproduction and transformation of particular social forms, its explananda are always specific, those things to be explained. So there can be no sociology in general, only the sociology of particular historically situated social forms. In this way, sociology presupposes both the special sciences and history. But the relational conception entails that the social conditions for the substantive activities of transformation in which agents engage can only be relations of various kinds. And the transformational model entails that these activities are essentially productions. The subject matter of sociology is thus precisely relations of production of various kinds. Now, if such relations are themselves internally related and subject to transformation, then sociology must either presuppose or usurp the place of just such a totalizing and historical sense of society as Marxism has claimed to be. In short, to invoke a Kantian metaphor, if Marxism without detailed social scientific and historical work is empty, then such work without Marxism or some such theory is blind. And that's it.